Oh, hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's Infection Control Matters. And um, this week, I'm at the APSIC meeting in Singapore. I bumped into my co-host, Phil Russo. Hello, Phil. Man, good to see you at the uh, at the tenth international conference of APSIC. So, um, nice plug. in Singapore, pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, we thought we'd have a chat and a catch up. And Phil's been involved with a group recently that's published on experiences of infection control professionals during COVID. So we thought we'd have a chat about that. So, do you want to give us a bit of background there? Phil? Sure. Thanks, Man. When you contacted me and said, um, "Let's talk about that COVID paper," I did have to qualify uh, which COVID paper. <laughs> which, COVID paper, because this, this one in particular feels like such a long time ago now, to be, to be perfectly honest. It was done in, in 2020 and have been involved in a couple more since then, looking also at, at healthcare worker experiences and the, the effect it's had on healthcare workers. But this one in particular was done by, and I've got to give a lot of credit to Alicia Baswa, who was a medical student at uh, Monash University, and I was one of a uh, number of supervisors for her on this project, together with Joe Doyle, Dash, Aiton, and Andrew Stewartson, so all credit to them as well, but particularly to Alicia, who did the bulk of this work. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the idea, this was in 2020. Um, Alicia was attached with one of the big public hospitals in Melbourne, Victoria, that was getting smashed by COVID. Um, COVID wards kept on getting bigger, healthcare workers kept on acquiring COVID and um, they could, working closely with the IPC team there, they could see that the IPC team were getting smashed. And the questions came up that surely this has probably been um, experienced across Australia um, by all IPC teams and ID physicians. So she decided or decided for her project that she would... um, a, a cross-sectional survey um, looking at the experiences of infection prevention control teams and mostly the infectious diseases physicians that were attached to those teams. Okay, and these are teams in acute hospitals, <coughs> not talking about community or other settings. That's correct, yes, yes, in okay. hospitals, yeah, yeah. So it just so happened that I was resident of a SIPSI at the time and Andrew was, was heading up the yeah. HICSI group for the Australasian Society of Infectious Diseases, which is about healthcare associated infections. So um, we had good networks and participants were recruited through the ACIPSI mailing list and also the um, ACID mailing list. Okay. Decent response rate? Because I can imagine people are a bit under the cosh at the time. Would they think, yeah. no, no, not another questionnaire? I'm sure that's what they did, Phil. Yeah. Um, and it's really, it's really difficult to... Uh, um, calculate a response rate because we don't actually know how many people got those emails. Okay. The, the databases at the time indicated that there was around about, well, I think it was about 12 or 1,300 ACIPSI members at the time and similar for ACID members, but we don't know um, because it was advertised by email and also newsletters. Yeah. So we don't actually know how no, many that's saw right. it. Relies so, on email addresses being updated. Yeah. Isn't it? yeah. Um, okay. So we couldn't calculate a response rate, but we did get 160 responses oh, okay. um, all up. Um, it was, uh, but 146 were were complete. Um, finished the survey. Hmm. Okay. Findings. Uh, so interesting. We we there was a number of um, you know queries um, in the survey about their PPE, about guidelines and about communications from government and also the hospital executives. Uh, Some of the key findings were perhaps in contrast to a lot of media at the time, 
that talked about shortages of PPE in hospitals and nursing homes, and I'm sure some did experience that. But the, the responses from this group was that it wasn't so much a shortage, but what was really challenging with PPE was the broad variety of equipment that they were supplied okay. with. Like, I remember in one particular instance, I think one hospital had four or five different types of face shields, okay. all attached differently, all yeah. looked different, um, all came in different packaging. So you get used to one and then another one would come along and another one would come along. Similarly with the um, N95s and P2 yeah, masks. that's the problem. If you, I mean, in the UK, we're having to fit test every single N95. So if you had five <coughs> different N95s in your, in your organisation, people had to be fit tested five times. That's, that's correct. Yeah. Do you yeah. have to fit test in they, Australia? We didn't. We do. Well, that's that's a big question, one, for the fit <laughs> testing. I think if I look back, it was around about this time that fit testing was very much on the agenda for a lot of discussion Okay, um, because of the very fact that, well, there was two different schools of thoughts, I guess. Um, but I think now it's a fairly standard part of, okay. of, uh, of the respiratory programs in hospitals. But, yeah, different types of N95s. I mean, you get fit tested for one mask, not, not the next brand that comes along that's slightly yeah. different. You have to get fit tested for that. But that was one of the challenges that the IPC teams found with PPE was the different brands and, and models that they were supplied with. That's an issue, isn't it? Because you can deal with what's in front of you, but if what's behind you, you don't know anything about. Yes, <laughs> You're constantly yes. having to chop and change. That's right. And, and, you know, they all have different packaging that open them up differently. Yeah. You're trying to do things quickly and efficiently and gowns tying up slightly differently. So it yeah. just, just adds to that extra burden that staff... Not great for staff either, really, trying to learn a different system no. every day. So that's, that must be really frustrating all around, not only for the IPC team. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. The other broad area that we um, explored was in relation to guidelines and we asked them about whether or not um, they had their own guidelines, uh, what they thought about the government guidelines at the time. Australia is a little bit unusual because we're a federation so we have a commonwealth government and um, states and territories have their own governments as well. So at that time we had a, um, a body infection control expert group which I was actually on at that time, I think, yes, I was still on that, who were providing general advice to the Commonwealth Government about guidelines. And then, of course, each state and territories had its own health department and they had their own guidelines and then hospitals have their own guidelines yeah. as well. Does so, it cascade down that what the Commonwealth says? Not that necessarily. The states so, doing? Oh, okay. Remembering that they're guidelines, they're not rules, they're <laughs> guidelines. <laughs> and so, like the Pirates of the Caribbean here, are we? <laughs> yeah. The, the Commonwealth tended to be very um, high level, I guess, broader, and the state, state and territory guidelines would probably be a little bit more prescriptive. But at the end of the day, the, the hospitals may have had to amend the bill sure. to, to fit their purpose. But we asked them whether or not they agreed, and, and there was, you know, fairly good support that they felt that the government guidelines were supported by scientific evidence and that, you know, um, increased their acceptability and, and they were sufficiently detailed. To follow. I mean, you had that fantastic evidence group, didn't you? They were constantly issuing the latest, but not a lot of that was IPC related. That was more about treatment and management of a case. Wasn't that it? was about the yeah. uh, the wonders of ivermectin yeah, and, yeah. Um, <laughs> and hydrochloroquine yeah, at yeah. that time, which was causing probably a lot of grief. But yeah, that, the guideline COVID-19 evidence force task base um, were more at that stage focused on, on treatment. Okay. But with, back with the guidelines, though, 
the issue for the infection control teams, the ID teams, was not so much what was their content because they were generally in agreement with them, but it was how frequently they were amended and updated yeah. and the timing of Generally, oh, okay. So, the UK system was about 5.36 on a Friday On a evening, Friday, yeah. Especially before a bank holiday weekend. That's, <laughs> that seemed to be increase the chances of a new guideline. Yes. Yeah, it's a significant issue for people. Yeah. I know looking at Twitter, there was it would combust every Friday evening. And I, and I, I tend to believe, I don't think that was an in, intent, uh, intentionally oh, done at was, that stage. Just that I think that was just, you know, they would probably spend the whole week or the whole day looking into the evidence and putting drafts together and getting them signed off and that sort of stuff. And when they're all done, it just happened to be at bloody 7pm on a Friday. Know, yeah. And they felt an urgency to get them out as quickly as they could and that's when they would get released. So that was... It was the timing of the release of the guidelines that was causing a lot of frustration for the hospitals, uh, and it was also the frequency of modification. You know, and what I remember at the time, there was this new information was coming about what's a close contact, um, and okay, so this person's close contact, so now we have to furlough them for this period of time. Yeah, and so there was a lot of you know quick changes with regards to furloughing staff and how long they had to be off for the types of requirements. Um, testing that they had to endure before they came back to work. So those okay. little technicalities yeah. change on a regular basis, but they were particularly important for hospitals who were furloughing so many staff at that yeah. time. And it's a particular problem, though, for, for IPC teams because they're having to give out a new guideline all the time, so it almost makes them look like they can't make up their mind, That's which right. is a problem. Yeah, and they would get yeah. questioned by the staff, well, yesterday you said this, but today you're saying yeah. that. Which actually um, this happens quite frequently in IPC anyway, but during a <clears> pandemic, that's, that's that was happening, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that that was really really informative um, uh, feedback that we got from that part of the survey. Another area that we looked at uh, was the communication, particularly with regards to communication between the government and the hospital executive, and the hospital executive and the IPC teams. And essentially, they, the responses were that the communication between hospital IPCs and the executives was really good in yeah. both ways. They they felt. Um, that communication there was, there was a lot of building actually of communication streams and mutual trust between management yeah. and and IPC teams, wasn't there? I yeah. mean, certainly, we felt that in the UK. I think. Yeah, I, I think that, that in the stories, I not, can't say that it really came through strongly in this survey, but certainly the anecdotal stories, um, there was a real strengthening of relationships between IPC teams and executives during yeah. this time. Yeah, which is a great thing. Oh yeah, as, as long as we can sustain it. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Well. Uh, other things that are being sustained at the moment, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. the the area where they felt the communication was worse was um, was that between the infection control teams and the government. Um, they, okay. they felt there was a, a bit of a disconnect there and that the government, uh, well, the infection control teams found it hard to, to get the ear of the government. Um, yeah, okay. Areas. I think that's, yeah. that's echoed. It's not surprising. Around, yeah. around the world, and certainly yeah. in the UK, that would, that would have been echoed, that, that feeling, <clears> frustration, yeah. Um, the other two more areas that we looked at, um, the next one was redeployment. Um, so as you can imagine, that uh, with with uh, during this time, there was lots of staff having to be furloughed because of either having COVID or being contacts, um, and that required a huge amount of resources to contact tracing within the hospital. So um, read, there was a lot of redeployment of hospital staff into the infection control team. And I think from memory at one stage, one large public hospital had around about 40 staff okay. working on their contact tracing wow. team. Okay. And these were staff that were pulled from all over the area. They weren't um, infection control literate, so to speak. 
um, uh, but they were they were needed to to help the IPC teams. Um, but the that was that was an issue because they they did find that um, many of the staff who were redeployed didn't have um, great um, computer skills. And you know, when it comes to contact tracing, having to do things quickly, you need those sorts of broader broader skills. Um, so they felt that for you know future planning um, for the for the future pandemics, that when it comes to ramping up staff, we need to actually not just pluck anybody out, but but have a little bit more criteria about who. Okay, who's that be makes helpful. sense. That's yeah, useful bit of learning. Have a, like a minimum set of skills that they might. Yes. Yeah, and you know, I, I guess that just. That just reflects the um, responsiveness of the action at the time. That, yeah, yeah. You know, they just had to do something quickly. Yeah. Uh, and finally, we asked about personal experience of the um, the RPC teams and the ID physicians. And you know, not surprisingly, and I suspect that we're going to hear about this for a long, long time um, as as the you know the the mental health issues um, will sort of manifest over the next few years, I guess. But um, the IPC teams, you know, reported a significant increase in workload, which is no surprise. Yeah. Uh, they felt as though they weren't doing their job properly because all their routine infection control activities had to be pushed to the side. Oh, yeah. And so they really felt as though that they weren't aware of what was going on in, in other areas of infection prevention because all their focus was on COVID. And at this, you know, obviously 48% um, reported that they um, felt as if they, uh, they were very burnt out. Yeah, um, I suspect now if we were to repeat that survey, mm-hmm. it would be much higher. This is two yeah, years I mean, ago. I, yeah, right? I'm mean, a bit surprised it was only 48. <coughs> really, so yeah, that, yeah. Uh, it shows a degree of resilience amongst the IPC yeah. teams. Yeah. I mean, you you yeah. said you've been doing a bit of work since. Can you give us a flavour of what makes yeah, it so, come? Um, part of um, what is called the COVID HA study, which is a Victorian study, which is a multi-centred study, and um, it's a longitudinal. Um, study so being headed up by Monash University in Karen Leader, it's, it's been funded by the state government, and so we've followed a cohort of healthcare workers over a two-year period and, and done repeated surveys of them, and we're just starting to get some data back now, which is, I guess, concerning from the point of view of, of how it's affecting healthcare workers. This is not just okay. infection control staff. This yeah. is all healthcare workers, and include some ambulance staff okay. as well. But the first lot of findings are being written up at the moment, mm-hmm. and it's quite startling what we're, what we're seeing, I think, and I think it'll um, be very, you know, interesting for some people to, to read how that's been. But, but that they are due for another survey. That there's going to be three surveys, and um, so I think it's, it's a cohort of several thousand. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's quite a, a, a So this is, this is survey or interview? Both. Okay. So there's a survey aspect to it and also an interview aspect. Okay. Well. Okay. Big so piece of work. It yeah. is a big piece of work and it's, um, I, I'm lucky to be a part of it um, with many other people. Um, uh, yeah, that's the COVID HA study, which there is a website if you want to have a look at it. Okay. But, um, we'll there'll be the... more um, publications coming out soon. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. okay. Anything else do you think? Uh, well, it actually just uh, reminded me of, uh, well, I came across a paper that was just released a couple of days ago. And uh, so this was a study that was done by researchers at Deakin University in Victoria. 
and it looked at the impact of COVID-19 on nurse alcohol consumption. <laughs> We're not talking hammer up here, are we? <laughs> We're not talking hammer up here. And um, look, it was it's a qualitative study. They did a um, 42 interviews, semi-structured interviews with nurses over um, several months in 2021. And, you know, I'll, I'll encourage people to go and put this um, a link to this paper, but there's a significant amount of increased alcohol consumption amongst nurses. Okay. Who, um, not just IPC tents, but, not, but, but yeah. nurses, yeah. 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 And, you know, for a number of reasons, but there's a lot of expression of feeling um, exhausted, overworked, burnt yeah. out, cut. There's a lot of warning signs yeah. around there for future workforce yeah. planning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, you know, this is 42 is probably you, can, you would consider a small sample, but it is a qualitative study and some of the findings and some of the um, commentary that we get from those nurses who are interviewed is, is quite revealing, so I'd encourage people to to go and have a look at that. That was from the Journal of Clinical Nursing and um, I added the CV with that link up. Okay. Yeah. Right, Bill, great to see you again. Thanks, Thanks very much. For Good the to chat. see you. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, I'm looking forward to the other work from the big study that you're involved in, but yeah. I think uh, similar studies conducted around the world, I think will be likely to show the same sort of findings <clears> for you. You know, the PPE anxiety, I had a little bit of that myself when I worked a little bit in the front line, but also the, the you know, the constant barrage of change of guidance was... Yes. Everybody. But I'm, yeah. I'm never convinced that it has to come out at half five on a Friday evening yeah. unless there's such a big change that you then can't send it out on a Monday morning and then yeah. set it forward. If, if, you know, if it's going to have that big an impact, because the stress levels actually went up quite markedly amongst colleagues I know from talking to them on a Friday evening, yeah. the frustration, and then they either stay there and work over the weekend when they're already had it. Yeah, and I'm not sure that that's the best way to do it, to be honest. And just saying something will be out every Monday morning at nine o'clock. You're ready for it. You're prepared. And you're ready to go. Unless it's that urgent, I'm not convinced. You know, my, my what I believe is happening is they're, is they're risk averse. Yeah. If they held on to it till Monday <laughs> and somebody said, you knew about this all weekend, you didn't tell us to change this guideline, that's negligence. Yeah, but they knew uh, about so it on I the think... Wednesday and it was just going through sign-off until <laughs> well, Friday. That's right. so, 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 the so you can get the same argument. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, if it's that urgent, <clears throat> you know, get it out quick. But, mm. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks very much. Great to see you again. Thanks, man. Who knows where and when. Next time. Yeah. And uh, we'll catch everybody again on the next episode of Infection Control Matters. <laughs>